0: So last week, Dave started us uh, in this new teaching series uh, through the book of Exodus, through the life of Moses, really, and we're calling this series Delivered to Dwell. And it is just a journey with God through the life of this guy named Moses. And here's the thing about Exodus is that by jumping in at Exodus, we're actually jumping in in book two of a five-book series. And so the five book series is just the the first five books of the Bible and they're commonly referred to as the Pentateuch. There's a big word you can use with your friends to show them how smart you are. I've been reading the Pentateuch lately. It's the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And Exodus is the second book in this five book series. And so we could jump in right away to this book and there's a lot of things you can pull out of it, a lot of meaning and some understanding. but there's a lot of meaning and understanding that becomes much more vibrant and alive when you understand where this book falls in the story. It's kind of like last year, many of you probably went to see Star Wars Episode 7 and you'd never seen any of the other six episodes. I'm really sorry if that's the case, if you went your whole life and never got to see any other Star Wars, but you may have found yourself in that situation. And the truth is, you could enjoy Episode 7 even without having seen the other six episodes, but there's gonna be this moment in the movie where you're looking and you're enjoying it, but you're wondering why the people around you are like geeking out when this guy's looking at this bastion black helmet that belonged to Darth Vader. And you're like, I don't, what is going on here? But if you'd seen the rest of the story, you understood the significance of what was happening right there. And that's kind of what happens as we jump in with Exodus. And so I am gonna do my best to tell a brief recap of book, book one, which was Genesis, so you can understand where we find ourselves at the beginning of book two. Uh, if, I wanna give you a really good resource uh, all through this series. There's an amazing thing going on right now uh, called the Bible Project. And if you haven't watched any of these videos that they're making, they're incredible. They're all available for free. Go to YouTube, just search Bible Project Genesis or Bible Project Exodus. These three or four minute videos will give you an amazing snapshot of these books of the Bible and help you see the overarching story of God as they're involved. So in book one, in book one, the book of Genesis, God has made this very significant promise to a man named Abraham. Now, when God comes to Abraham, there's really nothing significant about him, but God promises Abraham that his offspring, all of his descendants, are going to turn into a great nation and that through them, the entire world, all people on earth are going to be blessed. All people. What a huge promise. I mean, can you imagine just being this guy Abraham and God says, hey, all of your descendants are gonna, one, they're gonna be a great nation. That's pretty huge. But two, all people on earth. Think about how many people have existed on earth since Abraham. And God says, all people on earth will be blessed through your family. And then the rest of Genesis, following this promise to Abraham, kind of follows God as he keeps renewing this promise with Abraham's descendants. So it it starts with Abraham's son, Isaac. And then we see him renew this promise with Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And then we see him renew the promises with Jacob's 12 sons, who are the great-grandchildren of Abraham. And these become the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of Genesis, we find the descendants of Abraham. So his grandson, Jacob, and all of his 12 kids... And all of their families are living in Egypt for a variety of reasons, and they have found good favor with the ruler of Egypt, whose name is Pharaoh. And that's where we are at the end of book one. In the beginning of book two, as Dave set up last week, we find this family of Abraham who is now being called uh, the Hebrews or the Israelites. That's the same thing. We find them in Egypt still, but now they no longer have favor with Pharaoh. And their family has grown significantly. We know about 72 people are there at the end of book one. And at the beginning of Exodus, about four generations have passed. And now the people who would call themselves Hebrew Israelites are numbering somewhere around the number of 2 million. I mean, these are some fruitful people. Like they're, They are reproducing like crazy. That, that number 2 million represents... All those who are born into a Hebrew family, also those who marry into a Hebrew family, and all of their servants, and all the people who would consider themselves part of a Hebrew household, numbering around two million. But they don't have favor with Pharaoh anymore, and instead, as Dave showed us last week, they are facing great oppression. they facing great persecution. And they are remembering this promise to their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham. But they're longing for how this promise is going to be fulfilled. And they find themselves in a tough situation in Egypt. So this is where we find ourselves in Exodus. And to frame our story today, I want to give you three ideas to kind of help us understand what we're going to see at work in Exodus 2 and 3. And these three ideas are going to thread their way through the rest of our time together. So we're going to read at the end of chapter 2 to show us these ideas, starting in verse 23. So Exodus chapter 2. Starting in verse 23, this is page 40, if you're using one of our Bibles, here's what we read. It says, during that long period, uh, we'll unpack what that long period is, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered. God heard their groaning. And he remembered. He remembered his covenant. He remembered his promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. So there's three, three ideas that I want us to see today. And the first two come from this short passage we just read. And the first idea is just this idea of bondage or slavery. We find in this story of Exodus 2 and 3 that the Israelites find themselves in bondage. They're living in the midst of a genocide as Pharaoh has ordered that all of the boys that are born to a Hebrew family be thrown into the Nile to be killed. In the middle of this genocide, they are being forced into conscripted labor where they are working hard under the weight of the whip for the services of Pharaoh. And so the first idea is bondage, this idea of slavery. The second idea I want to see is that although they are living in bondage, they are living in this bondage in the light of a communal promise. So bondage and communal promise. You know, the text says here that we just read that God hears their groans under the weight of their bondage and that he remembers. He doesn't, he doesn't remember their faithfulness. He doesn't remember the good things that they've done. He remembers his promise to their great, 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 great grandfather. And he has concern for them. I love this picture of God. He hears and he has concern. And so the Israelites are in bondage, but they're in bondage in light of this communal promise, waiting to see how God is going to act. They're experiencing slavery, and you can only imagine them asking the question, what is God's plan here? What is this God going to do? How is this God working? And so you have bondage, and you have a communal promise. The third idea I want us to see is the idea of personal calling. Now, as I unpack this idea of personal calling, I'm going to have to do a lot of storytelling. So bear with me as we go back and we understand the story. See, the personal calling we're going to see belongs to this guy named Moses. I think last week we barely touched on the birth of Moses and who he was. And so I'm going to do my best to kind of tell the story of Moses. And we're going to look at some of what we see in chapter two. But here's what we need to know is that this man, Moses, He's the center point almost, in some ways, of this teaching series. So obviously, he's going to play a significant part in what we're learning over the next several weeks. Moses' life had a very dramatic start. I mean, he was born in the middle of a genocide that was being carried out against his people. And his mother, instead of throwing him in the Nile like she was commanded to, she hides him for three months, three months hiding an infant, and then she builds a basket and she puts him in this basket when she knows she can't keep him safe any longer. And she puts him down the river right near the palace of Pharaoh. And lo and behold, the daughter of Pharaoh, the man who is carrying out the genocide, finds this baby in the basket. And she realizes it's a Hebrew baby. And I love this part of the story. I don't have time to tell the whole thing, but by the grace of God, Moses is actually raised by his own mother for the first three or four years. She gets to nurse her own baby. And when Moses is three or four years old, the daughter of Pharaoh adopts him as her own, as an Egyptian, and he is raised in the palace of Pharaoh. Now, I want you just to imagine this dynamic for a minute of what this would have been like to be Moses. Moses, born a Hebrew, grows up in the palace of the man who is trying to destroy and kill all Hebrews. You imagine what that must have felt like for him. And we know that he lived with his mom probably for the first three or four years, so he has some sense of his identity with these people that are threatened, being threatened to be wiped out. To help us understand this, you can think about maybe a, a Jew that was born in Germany in the 1920s, and who was adopted by the daughter of a man named Hitler. You imagine what that, what that would have been like if you were a Jew in the 1930s when Hitler begins carrying out his desire to kill all the Jews in Germany and you grew up in his household. That, that didn't happen. That's, just, that's, what it would be, that's what it would have been like to be Moses. And so Moses finds himself growing up and by the time he's a young adult, the man that he would have called his grandfather is carrying out these threats to destroy and wipe out the people from whom he comes from. And this is where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 2. I want us to see Moses as a young adult. We're going to start reading in verse 11. We're backing up a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to find Moses as a young adult. And let's read what unfolds in his life. It says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. Pay attention to this language about Moses and identifying his own people. He went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, again, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. And the next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. And so here's here's what we see happening in Moses as he becomes a young man, as he grows into adulthood. I want you to imagine this scene that one day Moses leaves the palace and he goes out for a walk and he sees an Egyptian person beating a Hebrew person. He sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And Moses is faced with this decision. He says, Am I a Hebrew or am I an Egyptian? Am I oppressor or am I the oppressed? And this is a question that Moses must answer for himself. And his actions in this moment, I would suspect, they don't happen out of nowhere. He hasn't come to this place in a vacuum. You can imagine the identity issues that Moses has been having as a young adult. You can imagine he's been living with Egyptians, among Egyptians while seeing his own family members persecuted. You can imagine probably some of the guilt and shame that he has because he's selfishly enjoyed the life of comfort he's had. And yet he knows where he comes from. He's been in a place of privilege with all the comfort he could ever want while his people are living in daily persecution and slavery. And this becomes a watershed moment in Moses' life. He's looking at his own people in the midst of their bondage and slavery And he seems to think that in this moment, maybe because of where he comes from, I don't know, but he thinks in this moment that he has something to bring to the table to offer justice where there is injustice. And so he chooses to side with his people. He chooses to to step into his fullness as an Israelite. It's this picture of Moses having a desire to see his people delivered and freed, but he takes it all into his own hands. And he does what he knows to do in his own power. And the text tells us that he looks this way and that. And what that means is this isn't something that happens in a moment. He waits until the right moment to kill this Egyptian that has been beating his fellow Hebrew. And knowing that maybe he's done something that he shouldn't do, he kills him and then he tries to cover it up. He buries him in the sand. And you know that Moses is going, oh, that I make the right choice? He wants to identify with his people, but now he's a murderer. And then the very next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrews fighting and, and he tries to step in. He's like, don't you, why are you fighting with each other? You're not the enemy. And one of these Hebrews looks at Moses and you know you gotta understand how this person's feeling. They know who Moses is. They're like, oh, here he comes. <laughs> the Hebrew who's gotten to sit in Pharaoh's lap his entire life. Who made you judge and ruler over us? You think you can just step out of the comfort of your palace and come down and tell us how to live? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna kill one of us? just like he killed that Egyptian. And immediately Moses is scared, and he should be, because he knows that his murder has been found out. And Pharaoh finds out, and Pharaoh wants to kill Moses, and now Moses becomes a man on the run. And the next part of the story, I'll tell it very briefly, he he flees Egypt, he goes to a place called Midian, it's a couple hundred miles from Egypt. And when he gets to Midian, he meets this man named, uh, he has two different names that you'll see. One is Ruel and one is Jethro. It's the same guy. And he meets this man and he marries one of his daughters and he begins to be a shepherd for his father-in-law's sheep. And we get a snapshot into the kind of headspace that Moses must have been in at this point in his story. At the end of chapter two, it says that his, his wife bears him his first son and he nays, names him Gershom. Now Gershom doesn't mean much to us. What that translates to is a foreigner and foreign land. And Moses says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And so at the end of chapter 2, you have this guy who had all the trappings, all the things around him to become the hero. He, he, just, he had what it took to potentially become the one who could do something. And now he finds himself far from that palace, in a land that is not his own, around a people that are not his own without even a job or a calling to call his own, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And so the end of chapter two of Exodus feels like this real downer moment. The hero is lost. The Israelites are still in slavery, and they're crying out to God, wondering when he is going to answer their promise. And that brings us to chapter three. And chapter three is one of the coolest most amazing stories that we get to see in the text. We're going to read the first 12 verses of this. So just bear with me as we read through it. Get your Bibles, read along with me. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames. That word Lord is the name of God, is Yahweh. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So he thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why does this bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, Moses called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses, Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering." So I have come, I have come, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. If you don't know what all those ites are, that's okay. We're going to see them later in the story as well. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This part of the story may be a little more familiar to some of us. Many of us have, have heard the story of Moses and the burning bush many times. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time. And for those of you that have heard it a lot of times, we have to be careful because sometimes we hear these stories and they've just become so cliche to us that we, 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 we forget the reality of what must have been happening in this moment, especially to this guy, Moses. And so I want you to just think about Moses. From the end of chapter two into where we start at chapter three, about 40 years has passed, four decades so Moses, after 40 years, he is still working as the shepherd for his father-in-law. You think, what has become of this guy that's so much potential as a leader in Egypt? Well, he still hasn't even managed to get his own flock of sheep. He's still working for his father-in-law. And he's driving his father-in-law's sheep across the wilderness, and it's just a normal day like any other day. He's looking for grass for his sheep to graze on when suddenly he notices something out of the ordinary. He sees this bush on fire, and I don't know how much time you have spent in the desert or if you've, if you've been out in the backcountry in the wilderness at all, but if you're out in the country and you're like alone in the backcountry and you see something on fire, you're immediately a little suspicious. There's something going on. Fires don't just start on their own. Like something happened to cause this fire, and, and I don't know if you've ever lit a bush on fire before. I've, I have a couple times in college. That's a different story. I can tell you that another time, but if you've ever lit a bush on fire especially in the desert. You know, it does not burn very long because it's so dry. You light it on fire and immediately it burns up because it's so dry and the fuel for the fire is immediately wiped away. And yet Moses sees this bush on fire and it's not burning up. And he's like, what is going on? So he he goes over and he's like looking, trying to figure out what's going on with this bush. And suddenly he hears this voice, Moses. He's like, what? Like stops in his tracks. Like who in the world's? The bush is talking to me. And he says, oh, "Here I am, here I am." And then the voice says, "Moses, I am the God of your father." Now immediately Moses knows. You see, Moses is, is an Israelite by birth. He's been around the Hebrews. He's heard. He's heard the story of the promise. He knows about the communal promise. And suddenly he's hearing the voice of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he knows the fear of the Lord that Dave was talking about last week, and he hides his face because he's afraid to look at God, but I love what God does. God reveals his heart to Moses. He says, listen, I've seen my people, I've heard my people, and I care. I am not a distant, heartless God. I have heard their cries, I've heard their groans, and my heart is moved with compassion. I'm concerned for them. He reveals to Moses that he sees, that he hears, that he remembers, and that he cares. And then God gives Moses this personal calling, a calling that is going to uproot his entire life, everything that he's been working for for the last 40 years. And he's going to send him on this amazing journey to go and deliver the Israelites from their slavery. And so we see in this story we've got a people in bondage, we've got a people living under the hope of a communal promise. And then we've got this man with a personal calling being sent to deliver the Israelites. This is the story we see unfolding in Exodus two and three. Now this this is the part of the sermon where we typically move and transition into talking about, okay, now what do we see? This is great, great story, Aaron. What does this have to do with us? Like where do we see ourselves in this story and what can we apply to ourselves? We've looked at the key themes and the, the key parts of the narratives, but now how do we put ourselves in this story so that we can learn about God and his character and his nature? And this is an important part of interpreting the Bible. Being able to understand humanity and how God deals with humanity helps us understand how he deals with us. But putting ourselves into the story sometimes can be dangerous if we don't understand where we fit in the story. Here's what I mean is that sometimes if we put ourselves in the story the wrong way. We will make some wrong conclusions about God and about what God is like. You know, for some, it would make sense to look at the story and go, okay, Moses, Where's my, where's my Midian, God? Where's the, where's the place that I've run from you, the place that I've tried to get away from you? Or Many of us, many of us go, oh God, that's amazing, a burning bush for Moses. Where's my burning bush moment, God? When are you gonna give me my personal calling for the purpose of my life? And if you've ever had that question and struggled with that, you're not alone. Like many of us wonder, like when is God gonna reveal to me the personal calling that he has my life. But what this reveals, when we look at this story and we long to put ourselves into it as Moses, it actually reveals this tendency that we have to look into a story and to automatically want to see ourselves as the hero in the story. We want the story to be about us finding our calling, us saving the day, and us having this moment of significance that plays out in our lives as well. And here's the thing that was, I wrestled with this text this week. I kept asking God, God, where are we? Where, where am I? Where are we as a church? Where do we fit? And what God kept bringing me back to is that, Aaron, you are not Moses. Sure, we can see ourselves in Moses, right? We, we, can, we can see ourselves in his running and his, his hiding and his reluctance to step into what God had for him. We can see ourselves in the fear of failure that Moses has when he says, oh, who am I, God? But what God kept revealing to me is, Aaron, you are not Moses in this story. And, 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 And I don't believe that we are to see ourselves as Moses in this story. Here's the truth of it. When we're looking at the story of the Exodus and we try to put ourselves into the narrative to learn about God, unfortunately, we're not the hero. Think about those who, how many people were living in bondage? Couple million people living in Egypt, and how many, how many had God come to them personally and give them this calling to be the deliverer, the hero? Just one. And when I, when I read this story, I think that we are not the hero. We are the Israelites. We are the Israelites. We are these people in a story of living under the bondage of an enemy, living in a land that is not our, our own, living under the weight and the hope of a communal promise, And we, as God's people, we have already had a hero sent to us to deal with that enemy who has us in bondage and to deliver us from slavery into a better place. And that hero is the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hero of this story. And I know some of you are gonna go, wait a minute, how in the world did you just get from Exodus, talking about Moses, to to now you're talking about Jesus who, who lived like a thousand years later? How in the world did you make that jump? But here's what we know about the Old Testament. You see, when we look at the Old Testament, The New Testament writers will tell us that the Old Law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant simply serves as a shadow of that which is to come. The Old Testament is a shadow of that which is to come. Now, here's how, think about how a shadow works. You only have a shadow if you have an object there to cast that shadow, right? And it's true that you can look at a shadow and learn some things about the object. So, for example, I can look at my own shadow on the ground up here on the floor, and you could deduce a few things about the way I look by looking at my shadow, but your, your conclusions about the way I look are going to be a little funny. I'm going to be a little more blobby than I actually look, and probably a little stretched out in the way I actually look. From looking at a shadow, you don't get the clearest picture of the actual object. And see, the Old Testament is a shadow of what's to come, and the object that casts that shadow is Jesus Christ. Everything we see unfolding in the New Testament about the promises of God are all pointing to Jesus. Even when we are looking in the Exodus story about Moses, it is a shadow of what God is going to do in Jesus. So as we read the story, we are looking at the shadow, trying to get a picture of the one who cast the shadow, and what we see in this story that all things that we see as the Exodus unfolds is that all things are going to point to Jesus in one way or another into this greater story that God is telling. So here's the question. When, we, when we're honest with Scripture, when we put ourselves into the story correctly, what do we learn about God? And what do we learn about ourselves? I think there's three things that we can learn about God and about ourselves. The first one is this, that we are the Israelites. When we put ourselves into that story, we see that we are in bondage. We are in bondage to sin. And I know this is not like a super exciting thing to think about, but here's the, the plain reality that we are all born into slavery. Whether we know it or believe it or not, each one of us is born into a disposition towards sin. The book of Romans, Paul would describe it this way. he say, listen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And many people would say, oh, this is like the worst news ever. What a downer. But here's the thing. This is not bad news. It's just, it's just what is. It's just the reality. And the reason the good news of Jesus is good news, it only becomes good news when we begin to understand the truth of where we stand. When we, when we begin to understand the truth of our predicament. As slaves to sin, then the good news of Jesus really becomes good news. So we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but this is not what was intended for us. No, when God created humanity, you remember what he said? He said, let us create man and woman in our image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We were designed and created to be image bearers of the glory of God. And yet sin has entered into the world. And when sin entered the world, it broke that design, and and we are now striving, humanity has been striving to regain their position with God because we have been in bondage to sin. And apart from something happening outside of ourselves, we cannot escape this grip of slavery. Now, some of you are going, what are you talking about? I'm in bondage to sin. Like, I'm not a slave. I'll give you some examples of how this bondage works. You know, if you talk to anybody who's ever dealt with addiction, who's ever walked through an addiction, and they've gotten into recovery and they go into the 12 steps, they'll tell you what the very first step towards recovery, the very first step is being able to admit that I am powerless to do anything about my addiction. And see, there's this humility that has to come over an addict. Before they can find help from an addiction, they have to be able to confess that they're powerless to do anything about their addiction. This is such a beautiful picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Until we are able to confess that we are powerless without Jesus, that we are trapped in sin without Jesus, then we don't really understand why we even need Jesus. And so humility comes at the start of the Christian journey. All of us in here, this is a sweeping statement, but I think it's true. I think all of us in here are battling bondage with something. Some of you are battling bondage with a physical addiction. Some of you are addicted to a substance. And some of you are in denial that you're addicted to a substance. You say, I don't don't really need alcohol to feel normal. I just like alcohol. I'm not addicted to pot. Pot's not addicting. I just really like the way it makes me feel. I'm I'm not addicted. And Jesus says, hey, it's okay. You're in bondage. I've got keys. I have the keys to set you free. Some of us in here are addicted to things like materialism. We find our our purpose and and our comfort in things. And when you find yourself feeling low, you don't know why, but you find yourself driving towards the mall or your favorite store to buy a few things that you don't really need, but man, those things really give you some comfort and they give you some peace. And you are enslaved to materialism, thinking that material things are what are gonna give you joy, but they all end up fading away. Some of us, are enslaved to sexual sin. I've been battling it. I've been saying, I'm not powerless. over. I can do this. I can stop going to that website. I can, I can stop sleeping with random people that I just met. I can stop doing this on my own. And Jesus says, no, you're in bondage. You're, you're in slavery. You are like the Israelites, and you need someone to set you free. This morning, I'm, I'm sitting on the front row worshiping, and God starts to speak to my heart, and he reveals to me, Aaron, you are in bondage to laziness. This week, I struggled with writing a sermon, and part of it was because sometimes sermon writing is hard, but part of it, honestly, was because I had ideas in my mind, but I didn't want to do the hard work to put pen to paper and start to actually write down the ideas and figure out how to say it well. And I just kept putting it off, and kept putting it off, and kept putting it off. And God, this morning, was saying, Aaron, in so many ways, you are still in bondage to laziness. When are you going to let me set you free of that? And the list could go on. Some of us are in bondage to others' approval and what others think of us. Some of us are in bondage to shame. Some of us are in bondage to guilt. But the, the reality is that we are a people in bondage like the Israelites. And what we so desperately need is not to be the hero of our own story. But what we need is for the hero sent from God to come and set us free. So that's the first thing we learn is that we are in bondage to sin. And here's the second thing. Is that we live under a communal promise. We live We, like the Israelites, are not just in bondage, but we live in the hope of a communal promise. And this promise is what we see being revealed through this whole book all the way in the beginning. So in in Genesis 3, after sin has entered the world, God looks at the situation. He says, I'm going to make this right. He said, eventually, I'm going to crush the head of evil. I'm gonna crush it, I'm gonna destroy it, I'm gonna take away sin, I'm gonna make things right. And then we see him manifesting this promise over and over again. So he comes to Abraham, he says, hey, remember I'm gonna crush evil, I'm gonna do this through your family, Abraham. I'm gonna make your family into a great nation and I'm gonna bring a hero out of that nation that is gonna crush sin and death. And we see this promise working its way all through the Old Testament until we get to the New Testament and Jesus steps on the scene. And Jesus is the hero that God raises up I love, there's so many parallels with Jesus and Moses. You know, Moses had to make that choice to leave the palace to go and identify with his people. Jesus had to make the choice to leave his palace in heaven, the comfort of sitting by his Father in heaven to come and walk on earth as the Son of God to identify himself with his people. And at that point, the comparisons start to break down a little bit because Moses, in seeking to play out what God had for him, he sought to do it his own way and he ends up murdering a man Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he is tempted by the enemy to do things his own way. You remember this story in Matthew chapter 3, chapter 4? Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days, and Satan keeps tempting him to do things by his own power, to do things his own way. And Jesus keeps saying, I am going to submit to my Father. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the communal promise. Yes, we are a people in bondage, but we are a people who live under the hope of a communal promise, and we have evidence of this promise at a cross where Jesus crawled up on it. He took the weight of our slavery, the weight of our pain, the weight of our anguish, he put it all upon his own back, and he died an agonizing death for us. So we see evidence of the communal promise at the cross of Jesus, and we see evidence of the communal promise at the empty tomb of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not just gonna deal with your problem of sin. I'm gonna deal with your problem of death because whether you know it or not, you're even in bondage to death. The saying that threatens to overtake all of you, let me tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna stay dead. I'm gonna come out of the tomb. I'm gonna rise back to life, and I have this promise for you that eternal life is yours. Death is no longer the final stopping point for you. And we have this communal promise that though, yes, we all know that eventually we are going to die, that it is not the end, that Jesus is going to return. Jesus is gonna return. We sit under the weight of this promise and anytime we get concerned or scared because it seems so far away or Jesus, how long are you gonna take? He says, hey, just just take a look back. Remember the cross. Remember the empty tomb. I'm good for my promise. I'm good for my promise. And so we are a people who are in bondage. Man, we are a people who live under the hope of a communal promise that our shackles are gonna be undone and death is gonna be erased because of Jesus, the hero that we all need. And I think the third thing that we see here is is that God shows himself to be a faithful keeper of his promise and he begins to deliver us my third point is simply the name, the title of this whole series of sermons. The third point is this, is that we are delivered to dwell. We are delivered to dwell. All of us are wanting that personal calling. But the reality is that Jesus comes and sets us free from sin and death. and He delivers us from that. And he delivers us so that we can dwell with him. Well, how does this work? <laughs> Well, it means that when you start to follow Jesus, he comes and he puts his very life inside of you, his Holy Spirit. And just like we're gonna see in the story of the Exodus where God's presence leads the Israelites fire by night and smoke by day, God comes and lives in your heart by his Holy Spirit. And he promises to guide you day in and day out. Many of us want this personal calling, but we all have it, we already have it. We've been delivered. From bondage, the fear of sin and death, we have been delivered to dwell with God Most High in just the ordinary, normal moments of every single day as we commit ourselves to loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and committing to loving our neighbor as ourselves. Guys, there is no greater personal calling than this. There's no greater personal calling and giving ourselves fully to letting the Holy Spirit live in us so that the people around us can come to see the love of God and His people. This happens because we are delivered to dwell with God everywhere that we go, every moment we're awake, everything that we do, the Holy Spirit of God living with you, dwelling with you, giving you purpose and infusing even the most mundane moments with personal calling is living for the kingdom. We are delivered to dwell we're people in bondage, but we're a people living under a communal promise, and we are delivered to dwell with the Holy Spirit. This is the good news of the gospel. This story that we're reading, it is not our story. It's not Moses' story, it's not the Israelite story. It is a story of a God who sees, a God who hears, and a God who has concern. Some of you right now are know that you feel the weight of your bondage, And maybe you've been crying out and you're just begging God for some freedom, for some release from whatever bondage you're facing. And here's what I want to encourage you with. These Israelites, they were crying out in Egypt. They couldn't see any evidence that God was doing anything. For decades, they didn't see any evidence that God was at work. And little did they know that just a few hundred miles away, in the middle of a random desert, God was moving to raise up a hero. They couldn't see it. But God was at work answering their prayers by coming to Moses and raising him up. I just want to encourage you, if you are crying out to God, if you're calling out to him because you're aware of your bondage, God hears your cries. God hears your groans. And God has a heart of compassion and he is concerned about you. And he has raised up a hero and that hero has come, and that hero is coming again. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus promises to do. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. As we go to communion tonight, I, I, I just, I beg you, let's not let this be just an empty religious ritual, where we get a piece of bread and a cup and just take it because it's what we're supposed to do. Take that bread, take that cup, and tonight I encourage you, just Ask yourself, what am I in bondage to? Ask the Lord. I had, I had people come to the respond this morning, and they're like, I had no idea that I'm in bondage to my finances, and God just revealed that to me this morning. Like, ask the Lord, Lord, what am I still in bondage to? What am I still living as a slave to? And Jesus, would you come set me free? Jesus, would you be the one to free me from bondage? So I'm gonna pray for us. Communion is set up on the bar, set up on the tables. If you want to pray. If you want the prayers of a brother or sister, we will be standing at this respond banner over here. We would love to pray with you. We would love to pray for you. Uh, So please come for prayer if you'd like that. Uh, let's, Let's pray together. Father, man, God, thank you for being God of promise. I love, Lord, that when you hear our groaning, you remember your promise. You don't remember all the ways that we screwed it up. You don't remember all the things that we did that got us into the predicament that we're in. When you hear us praying and crying out, you remember your promise, and God, you are faithful. Thank you for being faithful. Father, tonight, would you come, Lord Jesus, as our hero, our deliverer, would you walk into this room with the keys in your hand to unshackle us from whatever has been holding us in bondage. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill our hearts and remind us that every day we have the joy of the personal calling of living with you and dwelling with you and being a light in a world that needs it. Come, Lord, come. We love you and we need you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.